If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. This is the first of our two December 2009 podcasts. Coming up in this edition... Even fish paste is actually tins of sardines mashed up with even more tins of bully beef. So the recipes themselves probably didn't help the cooks. That was Dr Rachel Duffett on how there was no escape from bully beef for the rank-and-file soldiers on the Western Front during the First World War. Yeah, he, he was a monarch who was seen as restoring French liberty. And that was Professor Julian Swan talking about King Louis XVI and the French Revolution. podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy of the magazine later on. But before we go to this month's interviews, let me tell you what's on our website at the moment. Now, whether or not you buy the magazine, there is a lot of free historical content to enjoy there. If you haven't visited it before, do take a look. There are special features to read, plus our guide to history on the TV as well as an index to back issues of the magazine, a weekly quiz, and a forum where you can talk history. 
You can find all of that at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Also, we have a series of audio guides on the website where Julian Humphreys delves into the stories of some of Britain's historic towns. If you go to our Visit History section and click on any of the Day Tripper pieces there, you can hear the guides. And as a taster, here's a clip from the guide to the North Wales town of Conwy. Now, many of the so-called dungeons that you find in Britain's castles were, in fact, little more than cellars and storerooms. But that's not the case here. The upper floors of the tower were clearly built for comfort. They got fireplaces and window seats, but there's no doubting what the lower level was used for. Note how the doorway is set about four feet above the floor level and how the drawbar halls were on the outside of where the door would have been. Proof that the door was intended not to keep people out, but to keep people in. So to listen to that in full, go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash visit forward slash Conway. Now, it's commonly said that an army marches on its stomach, and in our December issue, Dr Rachel Duffett of the University of Essex writes about British army food on the Western Front during the First World War. She specialises in the social and cultural impact of war in the 20th century. I spoke to her earlier. Rachel, you have a particular interest um, in what life was like for the rank-and-file soldier during wartime. Can you tell me, why was food such an important issue for the average Tommy? Well, I think you'd probably say it's important to all of us. For soldiers who were exposed in the front line on the Western Front, then food was a very important source of, of comfort uh, to them, not just physiologically, but also the connection with home through the parcels. And also it, it was evidence of the Army's uh, care or the value that the Army placed on the men that they'd um, conscripted or, or, or uh, forced to join the ranks. So, yes, it was central to to the soldiers' existence. Okay, and what was the supply system like? Did the soldiers actually get enough food? Well, it's hard to tell because a lot of the official army records relating to food haven't survived. I don't think they were regarded as important as, say, the battle diaries um, and other such information from the war. So what I've looked at in my research uh, is are the soldiers' own accounts, their diaries, their letters and their memoirs. And so it's unsurprisingly, perhaps, the soldiers are a lot less enthusiastic about the food and the quantities they received than the official army line is. I mean, clearly it's a, a very complex thing to try and supply such vast numbers of men. And if we think that on the Western Front in March 1918, there were just over 1.8 million serving soldiers. So supply was a problem for the army. And I think to give them credit, they worked very hard to introduce procedures that um, at least did the best they could to, to ensure that men received food. It was a very complex system from supply depots along the uh, French coast. Um, the food was then moved by train to the railheads where it then went on to motorised lorries. Um, but a large portion of the journey was made by horse-drawn limbers. We mustn't forget that although this is regarded as the first mechanised war, in fact, horses played a, a very important part, in, certainly in pulling not just the armaments, but the men's food supplies. And then eventually, it was generally small ration parties who'd carry the food uh, in um, boxes or on sacks on their back up to the actual front line. OK, so it was a, a really... Um complex and skilled operation to yeah. actually get the food to the um, to the cooks. 
What sort of things would they prepare for the soldiers on active duty? Quite often men in the front line would be doing their own cooking if any cooking was to be done because if you were quite close, it depends where you were in the line obviously, but if you were close to German lines and the possibility of getting a cook's unit up there was most unlikely because it would just attract attention, sniper fire and shelling. The cooks, army cooks I'm afraid don't have much of a reputation. I think uh, one of my soldiers called the manuals who could turn a piece of steak into leather in no time at all. I think as well, if we look at the army cookbooks, which are another source of information that I use, that some of the army recipes aren't very inspiring either. So even if the cooks were well-trained, and the army introduced an enormous training program uh, to, to try and improve the level of cooking, the actual recipes themselves probably didn't offer a great deal to the men. Um, one tends to find that bully beef, pinned corned beef, as we call it now, features in many of them. So even things that look vaguely reasonable, uh, for example, spring soup is actually four tins of bully with um, stock and a few vegetables. Even fish paste is actually tins of sardines mashed up with even more tins of bully beef. So the recipes themselves probably didn't help the cooks very much in providing an interesting diet and said certainly the men were, were less than enthusiastic about much of the food they received from the cooks. And what happened at Christmas? Was there something special at Christmas? Well the army pulled out all the stops then it tried very very hard to make it a special day for the men. Obviously if you're in a frontline unit on 25th of December you didn't necessarily get anything different in what you ate but you would get your Christmas dinner in a few days time or a week later or whenever you were rotated out of the trenches. If you were lucky enough to be in the reserve lines on the 25th then you generally got what all the soldiers uh, regarded as a feast. Now, a lot of this would have come from the army itself trying to, as I say, to, to find, if you couldn't find turkeys, to find actual joints of fresh meat, but also to add nuts, uh, even fruit, oranges. Fruit doesn't feature too much in a British Tommy's diet, but certainly at Christmas it would. Nuts and, of course, Christmas puddings. The other source for those extras would have been something like the comfort funds. Um, most of the big the battalions, or certainly I've looked at the rifle brigade um, information, they actually ran charities, basically, where um, women, often wives of officers, would raise money at home to buy comforts for the soldiers. And that often meant Christmas puddings. So the men would have say, something extra at Christmas. Um, officers would also get their wives to, to physically send over food from their own kitchens. One soldier I read was very grateful for his captain wife's mince pies, which had been made at home in Seven Oaks and he was consuming them out on the Somme somewhere. So anything extra um, that could be obtained was at Christmas. And, of course, the key thing, I'm afraid, even more so perhaps than the food, was the fact there was a chance for some alcohol, and it was generally considered an officer's duty to provide beer for the men. Um, so it didn't always happen, but that was certainly what the soldiers counted on at Christmas time. And also, of course, from their families, they'd received um, enormous volume of uh, parcels at this time of year. Um, 
And, you know, it was very important to the fact to the men, not just because of the extra food, but they could actually envision their, or envisage their families eating Christmas dinner at the same time. And you see quite a, new, a number of references in letters, men saying, as I ate my Christmas cake, Mum, I could see you and Dad and brothers and sisters sat around the Christmas table eating yours as well. So it was a real connection between home and front. Um, and the same, the men derived a good great deal of comfort from it. Yeah, indeed, a, a sort of symbolic significance far beyond its, uh, yes. its food value. What are army rations like today? How do they compare? Well, interestingly enough, the, the actual calorie level is almost exactly the same. It's for, uh, just over 4,000 calories. Of course, the, the difference is, and I think the prime difference probably is, is the change in nutritional, understanding of nutritional science over the last hundred years. The soldiers in the First World War um, were as much a victim as of our understanding, or the understanding at the time, of what was important in a human's diet. The role of vitamins and minerals and trace elements, and indeed the need for real variety in a diet was not understood at the time of the First World War. Um, it was only just coming into our understanding. So, of course, on one hand, the army thought if it delivered 4,000 calories a day to a soldier, even if it was in the form day in, day out, of a tin of corned beef and a packet of hardtack biscuits, it had done its job. Um, now, of course, the army realizes that, that men need a, a much more varied diet than that, with much higher levels, certainly, of vitamin and trace elements than were available was understood um, to be necessary during the First World War. Having said that, some of the things, there were remarkable similarities. And one of the things I noticed, I was looking through one of the new all-climate ration packs that have just been introduced to deal with the hot uh, climates in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, was that each pack contained a miniature bottle of Tabasco hot sauce. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what a modern globalized diet we all have now. But of course, when I look back, um, curry powder was an essential part of many First World War soldiers' individual private ration packs. Um, if they couldn't get it on the ration, they, they bought their own supplies. Uh, you know, it was used to make tins of meat or slightly stale fresh meat much more palatable and though that came from the British Army's long experience out in India so you know the need to flavour food to spice it up to make things more interesting is interestingly enough stays very much the same This episode is brought to you by Indeed We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. 
Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. And thanks to Dr. Rachel Duffett, who teaches at the University of Essex. You can read her feature in the December issue of BBC History magazine. Thank you, Sue. This month, there is a major conference happening in London about the origins of the French Revolution. I talked to one of the conference organisers and speakers, Professor Julian Swan of Birkbeck College, about how we ought to understand the French Revolution today. Okay, Julian. Um, you're organising a conference about the French Revolution in December, and the idea is to kickstart a debate about the origins of the revolution. Um, but before we get into that, perhaps you could just give us a, a very brief overview of, of, the, of the basic nuts and bolts of what happened at the start of the French Revolution. Right, well, I think a good way to understand it is to think that uh, in 1789, France had one of the uh, most important uh, polit- uh, political crises in over 170 years. Uh, For the first time, the National Parliament, the Estates General, met in May 1789 amidst great hope and expectation. But it was also against the background of a very serious uh, financial crisis and also uh, real problems, economic problems, that meant that bread prices, for instance, were higher in Paris than they'd been at any point uh, in the previous 50 years. As a consequence then, uh, when the king, Louis XVI, failed to take the initiative at the Estates General, things rapidly unravelled. Many of the latent social tensions between the nobility and the commoners, who made up more than 98% of the population, came to the surface. And in the end, the acrimony uh, between the nobles and the commoners, without the king coming in to uh, mediate, led to a breakdown in relations. Ultimately, the uh, Third Estate, the commoners, declared themselves to be the National Assembly. And that was a truly revolutionary movement uh, in, the, uh, in June of, uh, uh, of 1789. And that forced the king finally to act. What he did was to start to mass troops around uh, Paris with the aim, one assumes, of establishing order once again. It was against that background with high bread prices, great political excitement, fear, obviously, of what the troops might do as they uh, came towards Paris, that the Parisian people began to seize arms. And, of course, the great highlight of that moment was on the 14th of July, 1789, when the ordinary people of Paris and many rioting and uh, mutinying soldiers stormed the Bastille. And that, for many people, is seen as the, the great moment at which the French Revolution began. A moment of high drama when, when the Bastille was stormed. What, what exactly happened on that day? What, what was the, what, what the events? Well, what had been happening really over the previous uh, two or three days is that the drama had been unfolding, largely because the king on the 11th of July had dismissed his popular minister, uh, a man called Jacques Necker. That was seen really as a, as a symbol of the fact that the king was about to, uh, to begin this crackdown that I've mentioned. And as a consequence then, the fears in Paris led to people rushing around to the uh, main strongholds, such as the Tuileries, uh, and also to, uh, particularly to the Anvalide, where they were seizing weapons. They got those weapons and they needed the powder. And the Bastille was both uh, a fortress, a prison, and also a store for powder. 
And so the, uh, um, as I say, the mutinying soldiers together with the um, ordinary men and women of, of Paris went there uh, uh, with the aim of seizing the powder. And that uh, really, in the sense, was the trigger um, because the resistance they received, some shots were fired, uh, some of the besiegers uh, injured. And, of course, then that unleashed the anger of the crowd. Uh, and, indeed, you can imagine the great euphoria when this symbol, the Bastille, which had been there for over um, uh, uh, 500 years, fell. Mm-hmm. So, so, in July 1789, we're, we're, we're in it. We're in the middle of, of uh, society and revolution now. Um, but what we need to do is we need to get back and find out why it happened. And, and so you're, uh, in, in the conference you're organising, you're looking to try and try and find a new way to understand that. But perhaps we ought to cover some of the older ways that people have, have, have looked at it. So, so what, what, are, what are the conventional ways of understanding the start of the French Revolution and why it happened? Well, the uh, origins of the French Revolution is one of the great uh, uh, historical debates. Um, and indeed, there have, as you might expect, over the last 200 years or so, been uh, a great list of possible explanations that have been put forward. If we'd been talking uh, 40 or 50 years ago, what we would have been uh, concentrating upon would have been the social conflict, the struggle between the bourgeoisie uh, and the old aristocracy. Mm. And we'd have thought about the origins of the revolution very much in terms of a class struggle. That interpretation really you know, came into serious uh, disrepute, I suppose in part with the decline in the popularity of Marxism in the 1960s and especially the 70s and 80s. Um, and from the 70s, historians talked a great deal about revisionism. The idea, um, to give you a couple of examples, looking at the aristocracy and arguing that, in fact, far from being of the reactionary dinosaurs that the Marxists had once suggested, they were, in fact, many of them, to the fore in terms of promoting uh, liberal ideas, mm. whether politically or um, even intellectually. Similarly, the bourgeoisie, which had been represented by the Marxist as a rising class of what you might describe, I suppose, of gradgrinds, of industrialists and commercial uh, people, in fact, when under closer inspection, turned out, in fact, to be mainly the classic bourgeois of the French towns. Mm. They were lawyers um, and merchants, especially lawyers. And so, in fact, then, the sort of class model didn't add up. And so there was a great uh, concentration then on trying to explain not the deep-rooted social causes, but more the short-term political problems that had led to the breakdown of the regime. Um, and I suppose since 1989, there's been, as you might expect, as part of the uh, general popularity of cultural history, uh, a greater concentration on the ideas, on the language, um, and on the, um, if you will discourses uh, that uh, were uh, changing as a consequence of events in the lead-up to the revolution and, and, and as part of it. A great emphasis on terms, for example, such as um, uh, patrie or um, uh, citizen, mm-hmm. republic, looking for the origins, if you like, of uh, the intellectual changes that made a revolution uh, possible. So there's some of the ways in which historians have been uh, battling about it up till now. So um, you're, you're looking to move the debate on uh, in the conference. You want to find a new way of looking at, at why the French Revolution started. So perhaps you could just um, enlighten us. Yeah. I mean, I think what is important is to get back to basics and to have a look at what had caused the crisis in the first place. Too often, I think, there's, uh, the, the debate has become a you know, sort of a general search for uh, the origins of the revolution and not actually concentrating specifically on the problems that the state and indeed uh, the, 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 the government of Louis XVI faced. These were financial, 
diplomatic and also political in the sense of trying to cope with the fact that the population, uh, particularly the educated population, was, was and, and that was a, a section that was growing continually throughout the 18th century as a consequence of increased um, uh, wealth, of better education, uh, uh, and of a wider distribution of printed and other materials, it was getting much more difficult for the monarchy just simply to deal with issues without actually engaging with the population. What that meant, I suppose, in the old uh, 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 phrase springs to mind, there was a way in which the the, um, monarchy had got to engage with the population, had actually got to involve uh, the governed in government, if you will. And I suppose, I say, we could almost say that it was a, a problem in terms of taxation, at least, of bringing in an element of representation. And so, in a sense, I think what we've got to look at is what had caused and, and what were the factors that were making uh, the, uh, the government unpopular with its, uh, uh, its subjects, and how did the, uh, the king and his ministers think about solving those problems? And just to give you one example, the one, one thing that is, is very clear, um, throughout the reign uh, from 1774 when Louis XVI became king until 1789 when he summoned the, the, uh, the Estates General, there were continual attempts to involve the governing government through things such as uh, reforms of municipal uh, government, attempts to establish provincial assemblies with administrations that would oversee local government, an assembly of notables, which was to summon, as you might expect from the title, um, uh, various um, um, dignitaries from uh, within the regime and its administration to advise on how uh, government might be reformed. And finally, the Estates General itself, where it reaches out to the, to the people as a whole uh, for them to present their grievances to the government. So in a sense, what I'm saying is one of the key problems is how you identify the, uh, the problems that the monarchy faced and how it tried to solve them by bringing the population as a whole into uh, the equation. So the government, uh, and indeed the monarchy, was, was trying to, to, to bring the people into, into some sort of enfranchisement, I suppose. Um, but what, what about Louis himself, Louis XVI? Where does, he, where does he sit in all this? Because I think in the feature that you've written for us, you, you mentioned that he was personally popular, but he didn't somehow manage to transmit that to the people to in, to enable him to to push through any any reforms that he wanted to do Yes, Louis the Sixteenth is a curious figure. I mean, first of all, as I say, if you're coming to the revolution for the first time, and I mean, know obviously that the the unfortunate Louis would lose his head in the course of the revolution, um, and yet in 1789 he was genuinely popular. Yeah, he he was a monarch who was seen as restoring French liberty. Um, certainly, somebody who was seen, you know, in in in, in positive terms um, uh, it, it, at the beginning um, of his reign. His problem, and I think he, well, he had several problems, but one of one of his one of his his principal problems um, was that he never capitalised upon that popularity. He, he struggled uh, to to break out really of the traditional Bourbon habit of being centred in his palace at Versailles or in a string of other. Uh, palaces such as um, Fontainebleau, um, uh, uh, and and very rarely made the the effort to actually go uh, in, into into the uh, kingdom as a whole. He once once made a trip to Cherbourg to visit the um, military fortifications that were be, being uh, put together there, and the trip was a great success. Uh, people flocked spontaneously to see him. You know, ch- shouting "Long live the king!" And he was absolutely thrilled by all of this and shouted back "Long live the people!" 
Uh, long live my people. Um, and there was really an opportunity for him, I think, to forge a more popular bond between the monarchy and the, uh, and the French population. In a way, perhaps, uh, uh, that uh, other monarchs were able to do uh, elsewhere. And Frederick II in Prussia is a good example. Or perhaps even in, in, in the early part of his reign, George III in England. So it's this attempt really to make the monarchy popular and to, to tie it also to um, an undeniable uh, sense of French patriotism. So I think the king didn't take advantage of the uh, assets that were there, his personal assets. I think he also suffered from a more, um, ultimately a more damaging problem. And that was his uh, inability really to be decisive in government. It's known that, for example, he, uh, he was very close to his minister, Calon, who had been uh, in government in, 17, uh, well, in 1783 to 1787, had been one of the principal ref uh, reformers that the king had backed. Uh, the policies that Calon presented uh, to an assembly of notables in 1787 had been worked out with the king. Um, and yet, when Calon ran into uh, deep and persistent opposition, he was ultimately abandoned. Similarly, the king was strongly opposed to the recall of Necker, the uh, minister I mentioned a few moments ago. He didn't want him back. He'd had him in government early before and decided that he'd been let down by him and didn't want him back. But he came under such pressure from the queen and from other members uh, of the court and indeed more broadly from public opinion to bring back this man who was seen as something of a financial genius that he eventually relented. And so, in a sense, what you often get is a, is a problem of a monarch who, who is actually having to go along with policies that he personally doesn't agree with. And I think that's one of his, his grave weaknesses. So, could he have played it better and saved his bacon and the, and the place of monarchy? Of course, it's always it, it's difficult you know, to, to say, well, what if? Yeah. Um, um, but undoubtedly... Uh, there's nothing inevitable about history. There was no nothing inevitable about the revolution ending in uh, violence, in terror, and indeed with the execution of the king. So, yes, he could have uh, uh, prevented it. How could he have prevented it? That obviously becomes much more difficult. But clearly, one of the things that uh, stands out, especially in 1789, was his failure to take the lead. When the Estates General met... It had been convoked by, by Louis. It was there to present its grievances in 1789 to, and also to hear what the king was going to give to his people, what the king was going to propose for the reform of France. That was the moment when had Louis presented even quite a modest set of reforms, including, for, for example, regular parliaments, which is what people were, were hoping for, regular meetings of, uh, of, of the Estates General, then I think it's, it's clear that, he, that, that the, the offer would have been welcomed with open arms. He was popular, the idea of reform was there, and a strong lead from the centre would have been um, a real assistance. And it, uh, it, it was the failure to provide that lead that created something of a vacuum, into the vacuum flooded the third estate and the leaders of the third estate, men like Mirabeau, who had become uh, uh, famous later on. And in, in effect, once the uh, uh, control of events had been lost, the king never really succeeded in, in, in re-establishing any hold over them. He was always following events. Um, and as, as, as that result, really, from, uh, from, from then onwards, his chances of coming out with a settlement that suited him uh, were, were slim. Okay, just just to finish up now, I think. Um, why why do we still care? Why are we still talking about the French Revolution now? I mean, it's it's two hundred years 
more than 200 years ago. What's, what, why does it still matter? Well, I think, obviously, you can look at it in a, a number of ways. Uh, the revolution f- for itself, uh, I think, is undoubtedly one of the great uh, events, important events in terms of shaping uh, the future development of not just European, but uh, societies um, uh, worldwide. It had major impact on the way in which um, uh, individuals, thinkers, p- uh, politicians would think in Russia, uh, China, um, uh, uh, elsewhere, um, uh, th- throughout the last uh, uh, throughout the last two hundred years. So it ha- it ha- it's the importance as a, as, as a historic event in itself. You know, is on question. It's also one, I think, that is important because of the fact that the uh, implications of uh, the revolution still you know have a certain resonance what were we looking at in 1789 we were looking at a government that in many ways had um, uh, benign intentions regarding to its it, it, its uh, population its population was becoming more educated becoming richer becoming wealthier uh, becoming more uh, anxious to be involved in government um, and yet this rather authoritarian regime had got to try and marry this problem of maintaining its political and social control and at the same time uh, dealing with the expectations uh, of of the population. Well, I don't think it would be too difficult to think of one or two other regimes currently uh, uh, in place where very similar things are are still happening. Population does it you know ring any bells if you start to think about China or Iran today? You know societies which have very um, certainly in the case of China a very authoritarian government, but with a population that is changing in a remarkably uh, rapid and uh, significant way. So I think wondering about how um, regimes deal with the problem problem of change is one that is constantly. Uh, uh, of interest and one that we can I'm say we can learn from necessarily, but you know we should certainly reflect upon. Many thanks, Julian. So you can read a short feature on the French Revolution by Professor Swan in the December issue of BBC History magazine. And that conference, the Crisis of the Absolute Monarchy, is to be held at the British Academy in London on the 14th and 15th of December. You can find out more about that at the end of the feature in the magazine if you'd like to go along. BBC History magazine is published each month. You can find it in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.80. Or you can save money and make sure you never miss an issue by taking advantage of one of our great sub-deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are on the website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. This is the end. Next time round, we'll have Samuel Johnson and a look at what drove the Viking invasions. Do listen in. I confidently expect it'll be good. <laughs>